Our loving Father, we, we do thank you that you are at work now as you were back in the days of the Bible. Uh, we thank you for answering our prayers for Derek and for Jenny and please continue to watch over them, strengthen their faith in you, we pray. And uh, we ask that they'll get suitable support and care uh, in the community and from the church. Uh, we also uh, continue to pray for uh, the outreach opportunities that there are in schools. And uh, we thank you for the small team that are involved in this school and for those that are at North Haven. And we pray that more people will be keen to take up these opportunities and that you'll keep them open. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, if you've got one of the handouts, um, you might like to open it. It's got the Bible on one side of the page. It's got a, uh, a few points that I'm going to follow on the right-hand side of the page. And, and you'll notice uh, under the first point there, I've listed three names. Um, Elizabeth Holmes, Sam Bankman Fried, and Jesus. So first of all, I'm going to ask for a show of hands for anybody who knows who all three are. Am I right? There's nobody who knows who all three are? Okay, all right. Um, now, does any, anybody know who two of them are? Um, stick up your hand if you know. Okay, there's... Um, uh, which, which two, by the way? I don't know them personally, but Elizabeth Holmes and Jesus. Okay, Elizabeth Holmes and Jesus. I, you do know one of them personally. That's it's good. How's Elizabeth anyway? No, sorry. Um, any other twos? Um, anyone just know one name on the list? Yeah, there's another two up the back. Okay, and I, I hope that the one that you know is Jesus. But I'd like to tell you a little bit about the other two. Um, I've been uh, dipping into the news over the last couple of days, and both the other two have come into serious trouble over the last, well, in some cases over the last year or so, but it's come to a head in the last few days, and they've hit the news. Both of them have managed to be worth billions of dollars one day and virtually nothing the next. Uh, I'll tell you a little bit about uh, Elizabeth Holmes, first of all. Uh, just reading to you an article yesterday from the ABC. It says here that Theranos, that's different to Thanos, by the way, for you um, cartoon fans. Theranos founder Elizabeth Holmes has been sentenced to 135 months. That's more than 11 years in prison for defrauding investors in her now defunct blood testing startup, once valued at more than 13.5 billion. She said that she wanted people to invest in her idea that with a couple of pinpricks of blood, you could do all the testing that people now need a vial full of blood to be able to do. Uh, she was building this idea that they could come up with portable machines that you could have in your home, do your own blood tests that would be useful by the armed services, a whole bunch of other people, only there was a great idea and a great thought, a great promise, but no delivery. They could never do it. And rather than disclosing that they could never do it, as people were sending in their blood to be tested, they would send it instead to pathology companies to give the results back to them and pass them on. Incredible fraud took place. What about the other guy? Well, I think you'd be seriously worried if you look closely at his name, Sam Bankman Fried. How could you possibly trust a man called Bankman Fried? 
because that's what happened to him, basically. Um, I'm going to read to you from his Wikipedia page, uh, and it's extraordinary. I looked through the index, the kind of bibliographical notes for the Wikipedia page, and most of them have been put up in the last three weeks. So a lot has happened to this man very, very quickly. Bankman Fried's net worth peaked at $26 billion. This guy is 30 years of age now, by the way. At one point, it peaked at $26 billion. In October 2022, so that's last month, he had an estimated net worth of $10.5 billion. So at some point, he'd lost $16.5 billion. But on November the 8th, that is just a week or so ago, amid FTX, that's his company's solvency crisis, his net worth was estimated to have dropped 94% in a day to less than a billion dollars. According to the Bloomberg Billionaires Index, the largest one-day drop in the index's history, and by November the 11th, 2022, the Bloomberg Billionaires Index considered Bankman Fried to have no material wealth. In the meantime, his cryptocurrency company has been invested in by thousands and thousands of people and there is nothing to show for it. You might say the emperor's new clothes. Now, why do I mention Elizabeth Holmes, Sam Bankman Fried and Jesus in the same breath? Well, for this reason, if Jesus didn't do what the scriptures say he did, and if he couldn't back up the claims that the scriptures say he made, then the fraud of Elizabeth Holmes and Sam Bankman Fried are pittance by comparison. If what Jesus has done has veiled the truth defrauded people and been the initiation of an elaborate scheme that has now impacted probably close to 2 billion people over a period of 2,000 years, then what's a few billion dollars lost to investors? You see, the one thing you can't say about Jesus is that he's irrelevant. He's either extraordinarily relevant or he is an incredible fraudster. Or perhaps the church after him, making him to something that he's not. So I want us to think about this again. You might remember last week, we looked at the fact that as we're dealing with the nature of Scripture, there's some extraordinary claims that are made. There's dramatic things that are taking place. There's miraculous stuff that's there, but it's in the midst of history. And I encouraged us to suspend disbelief and to read the historical accounts and see what they say about this one who engaged in miraculous ways. We see it again, don't we, in these passages. Uh, the healing of people. All those who came to him, he's healing. People just touch the hem of his garment and they're healed. The uh, extraordinary account of the 5,000 men plus women and children who have nothing to eat who get fed out of a little kid's lunchbox. That doesn't happen every day. The, the account of a boat that's out on the lake being tossed by the storm with Jesus coming to them on the water. Really? Who does that? 
and then Peter stepping out of the boat and for a time coming to Jesus on the water. This is extraordinary stuff. But I want to say to you today, it's not just extraordinary stuff, it's significant stuff. And if you think about the nature of the word significant, it literally is sign-ificant. It's significant in that what's going on with Jesus is a sign to how we are to understand him. It signals something about Jesus. These accounts are not just party tricks. It's not that you've got Jesus, the greatest showman. It's not just that Jesus will be in the final tonight of IGT. That is, by the way, Israel's got talent. Um, No, what we're dealing with with Jesus is in context. It's a context that begins, well, I was going to say in Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, but it's got a long history before that. And Matthew tells us it's got a long history because again and again and again and again, in the first few chapters, he says, this fulfilled what was said. Jesus fulfilled the promise that was made. Back in chapter 13, when he's telling the stories, the parables, and we're wondering why he might do this, he tells us. He says, go back to Isaiah chapter 6. That'll give you a framework for understanding what I'm doing. And then later on, with another parable, he says, have a look at Psalm 78. It'll give you a framework for what's going on. Friends, what we are dealing with here is incredibly significant. And the clues are there. I'll tell you one clue that's there that you won't necessarily pick up on immediately with the NIV translation that I've printed for you. Um, It's in verse 14. Sorry, hang on. I'm going to get the numbers right. It's in verse 13. That's the first one. It's in verse 15. Let me read them. When Jesus heard what had happened, he withdrew by boat privately to a solitary place. And then down in verse 15, uh, the disciples came to him and said, this is a remote place. Same word each time. What word is it? Eremos. Desert. Wilderness. These things are happening in the wilderness. What else happens in the wilderness? See, it gets our minds thinking, what's going on? Um, You'll notice connections to things that happen in the wilderness. Now, let's have a look now at the account, right? We've got a a bit of flavour. We've got a bit of context We're looking for what is significant, what signals there are, how Jesus might be signing. In verse 13 and 14, having gone to this solitary place, hearing of this, the crowds followed him on foot from the towns. And when Jesus landed, he saw a large crowd. He had compassion on them and healed their sick. Again, if you come to the very end of the page, the last verses of the chapter, when they had crossed over, they landed at Gennesaret, And when the people of that place recognised Jesus, they sent word to all the surrounding country. People brought all their sick to him and begged him to let the sick just touch the edge of his cloak and all who touched it were healed. What do we see? Jesus healing an incredible number of sick people. Is that normal? No, I don't think it's normal. Jesus is doing something extraordinary. He's doing something significant. Yes, we see what's in Jesus' heart. There's compassion that drives this. But why has it worked out in this way? Well, we've already had clues on this one. 
if you go back just a couple of chapters, remember that John the Baptist was a little unclear about Jesus, whether he was the one or whether to expect somebody else. What did Jesus say to John's followers? He says, go back, I'm in chapter 11 now, verse 4, go back and report to John the Baptist what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. In answer to John's question about who Jesus is, is he the, the Messiah who was to come? Is he God who was coming after the great prophet Elijah came? Is he the one that everyone's been looking for? In response to this question, Jesus said, what did you see? What did people go out to see? What's been going on? And he talks about people being healed. Why is that significant? Well, let me take you further back. The promises of God in the book of Isaiah. So in Isaiah chapter 35, for example, there's other passages that also declare this. Listen to these things. I'm going to read to you from Isaiah 35. The desert or the wilderness and the parched land will be glad. The wilderness will rejoice and blossom. They will see the glory of the Lord, the splendor of our God. Strengthen the feeble hands, steady the weak knees. Say to those with fearful hearts, be strong, do not fear. Your God will come. He will come with vengeance, with divine retribution. He will come to save you. And then, then the eyes of the blind will be opened, the ears of the deaf unstopped. The lame will leap like a deer. The mute tongue will shout for joy. Water will gush forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. See, what, what's the context of what's going on? Here is Jesus He's in the wilderness, he's in the desert. Here is the healing, the compassion on these people. I take it Jesus is signing very, very clearly the one who was to come after the one preparing the way for the Lord is here. He's doing the things that God was to do when he came to his people in great detail. Well, reading on, they're in this lonely place. Um, it's getting late in the evening. They didn't have 7-Eleven and Audi shut early. So there was nowhere to get food. No food and yet thousands of people. For Jesus, not a problem. He says there, give them something to eat. But the disciples answer, verse 17, we have here only five loaves of bread and two fish. Now I've caught some pretty big fish in my time. About this big. Right, look at the right hand, okay? That's, that's the one. <laughs> that's, that's the trick. Actually, the trick, if, if you want to show how big the fish are when you catch them, is to hold them out in front of you as you get photographed. Because the further out in front of you, the bigger they look. And you can take a tiny little brim and make it look like a giant snapper if you get it in the right spot in the camera. But the point is not that they were two massive fish. Not that they were breaking the Guinea's Book of Record for the size of the loaves. The point is that Jesus is feeding the hungry out in the wilderness. And he's doing it miraculously. Now, what does that remind us of? Non-rhetorical? Moses? And? Manna? We looked at it in Exodus, didn't we? 
God provided for his people. And, you know, God providing bread for his people in the wilderness became a reference point for how God relates to his people again and again and again through the Bible. I'll give you an example, and it, an example, and it actually comes in the chapter of the Bible that Jesus has already signalled. So when he's talking about parables and he says, have a think about Psalm 78, this is what we read in Psalm 78. Speaking of God, it says, He gave a command to the skies above and opened the doors of heaven. He rained down manna for the people to eat. He gave them the grain of heaven. Human beings ate the bread of angels. He sent them all the food that they could eat. So Jesus isn't simply putting on a good spread. I mean, maybe you've had to, uh, you know, kind of raid the pantry, do all that you possibly could because there were more people coming than were planned. I remember when we started our, our um, campus ministry in Canberra, the first kind of social event that we had back at our house, I'm not sure how many people I told Fiona we were expecting, but probably around about a dozen. We had 70 people turn up. Um, but not a problem. Woolies was open. There were, there were sausages that could be bought. There were buns that we could get. No, Jesus is feeding the hungry in the wilderness. He's signifying. He's signalling. And here's a passage I didn't put there, but if you're taking notes, Deuteronomy 18 says that a prophet like Moses is going to come. This kind of sounds a bit like Moses, doesn't it, in the wilderness? Here is God coming and feeding his people with the manna from heaven. That's what we're to take out of this. And then in the next account, you get Jesus uh, going on ahead, the crowd getting, um, uh, sorry, the, the disciples getting into the boat and going across to the other side of the lake. And then the boat getting buffeted by the waves and the wind. And then shortly before dawn, Jesus goes out to them walking on a lake. And when the disciples saw him walking on the lake, they were terrified. It's a ghost, they said, and they cried out in fear. Um, again, it's just matter of fact in the midst of normal statements. Do you notice? Yeah, the, Jesus retired. He, he, he went off to uh, a place on his own uh, to pray. Uh, he sent the disciples along in a boat. Uh, the wind comes up. The waves get higher. Uh, they're out in the boat. So Jesus walks to them just before dawn. That's bizarre. Does that happen? Yes, it's bizarre. And no, that doesn't normally happen. But the question we should ask is why? Why might he be doing this? And how might this relate to the feeding of the 5,000? And is he signifying something by doing this? And if you go back in Matthew's Gospel, you don't have to go back very far, back to chapter 8. You can read of another account that takes place on the water. Listen to this one. Then he got into the boat and his disciples followed him. Suddenly a furious storm came on the lake, so the waves swept over the boat. But Jesus was sleeping. The disciples went and woke him, saying, Lord, save us, we're going to drown. He replied, you of little faith, why are you so afraid? Then he got up and he rebuked the wind and the waves, and it was completely calm. 
And then the men were amazed and asked, what kind of man is this? Even the winds and the waves obey him. Well, what did they come up with? What did they understand? What was Jesus signifying back then? And a similar event now. Jesus just happens to not be in the boat with them. But there's this exchange that takes place between Peter, his disciple, and Jesus. And notice that Jesus says here in verse 27, Take courage, it is I, don't be afraid. Now, in this account of Jesus walking on the water, you'll notice I put on your outlines, walking on water, I am. Now, that's not a Yoda translation, by the way. We need to recognise that when Jesus says, it is I, in the original language that this is written in, he says, I am, ego, ami, I am, ringing any bells? I am, Moses, I am, wilderness, I am, manna from heaven. When Moses meets God in the bush that doesn't burn up and he says, who should I say sent me? God says, tell them, I am sent you. Here is Jesus walking on the water, responding to their fear. Take courage. I am. Don't be afraid. It's an awkward expression. But I think Jesus is signifying something here. Lord, if it's you, Peter replied, tell me to come to you on the water. Come, he said. And Peter got down out of the boat, walked on the water and came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid and began to sink, crying out, Lord, save me. I think when I've, I've heard this talked about and when I've kind of created a mental picture in my head, I've forgotten that the walking on the water is in the midst of the waves. So maybe I've, I've just kind of brought two stories together. First story, back in chapter 8, he makes everything still. So therefore, of course, when he's walking on the water, it's still. But this isn't still. Jesus hasn't caused the storm to cease this time. He's just said, don't fear. I am. This time, he walks in the midst of the waves. Peter hops out in the midst of the waves. And for whatever reasons... He starts to fear and Jesus questions him on this. Having cried out, verse 30, Lord, save me. Jesus reaches out his hand and caught him. You of little faith, he said, why did you doubt? And then they climbed into the boat and the wind died down. And then those who were in the boat worshipped him saying, truly, you are the son of God. So this is another extraordinary account. But I don't think this is just to give something to talk about in Jesus Christ Superstar, like walk across my swimming pool, if you remember that. No, what we're dealing with here is, again, what the Old Testament says God alone does. In Job chapter 9 and verse 8, it talks about God alone treading on the waters of the sea. And then the same idea gets picked up in the book of Isaiah. Let me read to you from Isaiah chapter 43. I'll 
Isaiah 43. I'll just read a few verses. But now this is what the Lord says, He who created you, Jacob, he who formed you, Israel, do not fear, for I have redeemed you. I have summoned you by name, you are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. When you pass through the rivers, they will not sweep over you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. The flames will not set you ablaze, for I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Saviour. And then a little later, we read these words down in verse 19. I am making a way in the wilderness, the streams and the wasteland. See, all of these images are found in rich seeds of the Old Testament. And when you get to Jesus, these seeds have grown into flour. You've got the fulfilment of what has been promised. And as we read this with eyes on Matthew and eyes on the Bible as a whole, I think we're to be picking up on this. I think we're to get the significance. Of course, there's no shortcuts to getting the significance. If we just dip into the Bible occasionally and read things in abstract, without any context, without any background, without reference to other parts of the Bible, we just won't see what a wonderful tapestry we're dealing with. But, and, and I speak personally at this point, the more and more I study the Bible, the more I see this interwoven together, the more I'm confident to trust God in his word. I'm thinking no human and, and, and no group of human over historical contexts with different languages in, in different backgrounds, in, in different circumstances, could possibly weave together a thread that would find its fulfilment so absolutely clearly in Jesus. You don't humanly do that. Unless, of course, God has woven the tapestry. You go back 2,000 years before Jesus and God makes covenant promises to Abraham and says that Abraham will be the father of a great nation and that all the nations on the earth will be blessed through Abraham. You go back 1,300 years and you've got Moses being pulled out of his people to go back to his people and save them and a new covenant being made. You go back 1,000 years to David and God re-establishing his covenant with King David and David's son will rule on the throne for all eternity. You go back 700 years to Isaiah, weaving this stuff together and taking Abraham and taking Moses and taking David and showing that it was never to be fulfilled historically, but spiritually and completely in Jesus. Friends, what we're dealing with here, I take it, is the linking and the integrating and the building together of all the promises of God climaxing in Jesus as God coming to save his people. And if God has done that, and we're the other side of this, and we get the accounts and we can read them, and we can see the whole drama unfold, and we're told what has happened and we're told what is yet to happen and we're given perspective as to where we stand in relationship to these things, then how will we respond to the Jesus that we meet in this chapter? And I think that the message that Jesus would be saying to us from this chapter is pretty clear. It's put your faith in me. 
It's, it's implicit with those who bring their friends to Jesus to be healed. They're, they're putting their trust in Jesus to heal them. It's implicit in those who just take hold of his garments so that they might be healed of their sickness. When we see what can be done with nothing and how God can provide bread from heaven and how Jesus fulfills that, that's a great reason to put your trust in Jesus. Jesus calls to Peter to put his faith in him. And we see, I think, the model response, the best response that we've seen to date, which in some ways, if you take these two accounts that happen on the water together, the question back in chapter 8, who is this that the wind and the waves obey him, gets answered now in this account where those who are in the boat worshipped him, saying, truly, you are the son of God. They've got there. And I take it it's calling us to recognise who Jesus is. Do you know that Jesus is the saving Son of God? Have you called on him to save you? Because that's what he does. And he does it so well. Some of you have been Christians for a long time. And I'd imagine that, like myself, there are things that happen and there are times in life when can be quite difficult being a follower of Jesus and maybe you get tossed around maybe there are things that trouble you maybe they're intellectual maybe they're moral maybe they're relational maybe they're financial maybe there's pressure on you maybe you've got difficult relationships maybe it's simply the lure and seduction of being comfortable that causes us to question our faith all those things, friends, are temptations to take our eyes off Jesus. And the Bible says to us, on more than one occasion, keep your eyes fixed on the author of your salvation, Jesus Christ. He is the one to trust. He is the one to put your hope in. Yes, there will be times when, like Peter, you get tossed around when there's temptation to take your eyes off Christ, when the circumstances seem overwhelming. But remember, Jesus is gracious even to Peter. And if Peter's put in his foot in his mouth already once or twice, there's a bit more to come, I can tell you. And by the end of this gospel, Jesus will have said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. He'll have warned him that he's going to deny Jesus three times. And yet, at the end of the gospel, Peter is restored. He has received the grace of God yet again. He's moved to trust Jesus in the resurrection. And he goes on to write two books of the New Testament and to lose his life for his saviour. I don't know what's facing you. I don't know what things will come your way or our way in life. There are some days when it doesn't look pretty. But I do know this, that Jesus who saved then will save now. And that's where your hope is to be found. 
So friends, let's keep our eyes fixed on Jesus. Let's pray.